Hi, I'm Jessie Draper. I am first and foremost a mom, a boy mom to be exact, a boy mom who invests in female-founded companies. Yep, the joke's on me. I'm the founder of Halogen Ventures, a former entrepreneur and creator of an Emmy-nominated television series on technology. My mission is to support women and help raise awareness about the biggest issues facing society, women, and families today, starting with solving childcare. From celebrity guests to founders and politicians, everyone came from a family somewhere. And I want to hear from you, the families of America, on how we can make change because I can't do this alone. Let's get started. We have monumental work to do. Mommy, mommy, mommy. Rosie Rios is a more familiar name to you than you probably realize because she signed the majority of the dollar bills you handle today, over $1.8 trillion worth. That's a lot of money. Rosie Rios was the 43rd treasurer of the United States. She's most recently known for initiating and leading the efforts to place a portrait of a woman on the front of U.S. currency for the first time in the nation's history. You're going to love Rosie. She's a new friend and a huge hero of mine. She is fantastic. I'm so excited for you to hear what we chatted about. Rosie, I cannot believe you're here. I met you a week ago and I literally won't let you out of my life. I am just keeping you in my life because you're so absolutely fantastic. Thank you. So just to give everyone a background, we met last week <laughs> in Portugal. Yes. And what were we doing? We were at Web 3.0 in Lisbon. Yeah, we were at Web Summit in Lisbon, which is one of the, I guess it's the largest tech conference in the world. 80,000 people. It was insane it was and crazy. so much fun. My first time going, my first time to Lisbon, it was Amazing. Never forget it. It was so fun. Yeah. yeah. My first time too. I'd never been there before. Just word to the wise, don't bring heels <laughs> to Lisbon. Don't bring heels to Portugal, period. Yeah. You will fall. You need real good traction right, there. But right. beautiful city. Absolutely. Um, although we were in like a conference Yeah. Center. I saw Lisbon every time from a car. Every time I was on my way to a lunch <laughs> or a dinner is how I saw it. But no, it's all the best parts of Europe, like in a compact place. Yes. It was amazing food, amazing wine, the, the cobblestone streets, the architecture, so just beautiful. fabulous. Definitely going back. Yeah, far. I would. I definitely want to yeah. go back to that conference. Yeah, but too. can I say though, you were absolutely one of the highlights of my trip. <laughs> oh, oh you my were goodness! One of the no, no, of my absolutely. Trip. So much fun. We had so much fun. We so I met Rosie because we were doing a Meet the Drapers show, which is the show my dad does, and he pulls in all of the family members at some point, and we it's a pitch competition show. For those of you in the United States, it airs around the world, so we get 30 million views around the world, but not in the US. And so we got to film a live show in Lisbon, and Rosie was the esteemed guest <laughs> on the show, and it was wild. It I felt like there was no script and it was hilarious and we were just taking pitches and we were dancing it was, <laughs> it was definitely one for the memory book that's for sure but you know what I love about meet the draper so it's looking for the next big entrepreneur and obviously your dad Tim Draper is a legend a living legend as oh, is your, your is... grandfather Bill Draper of oh, course so we nice. all know who they are but the fact that I was able to do this obviously that was my second show we'll talk about the first one in a minute but <laughs> the second show that I did but it, it was live in front of this amazing kind of tech audience at the summit. I know, it so, was crazy. So to have the crowd interaction, to not know exactly what your dad was going to do live was just too much fun. That's how I feel just like all the time with my dad. You it's just like that. you're always on your toes. And it's <laughs> then Rosie kindly asked me to join them to speak to a bunch of VCs the following night. And 
it was it was you and my dad and my dad. I'm just used to my dad being like, and perform, and okay, go. And you're just standing in front of a million people being like, <laughs> okay. And you just, it's been really good for me in my life. Like he, you have to be comfortable with public speaking yeah. to be in this yeah. wild and so, crazy yeah. So family. originally he invited me to be the keynote speaker at his LP dinner, which was again, fabulous. But yes, after we did the show, I just felt this level of comfort among the three of us. It just gelled, right? It just worked. And so I thought to myself, why am I going to do something with me and Tim Draper when I could do something with me, Tim Draper, and Jesse Draper? And it was great, right? It was fun. Oh my it was God. fabulous. It's it exactly was the way it should be. Super fun. Back to our topic of the day, which is childcare, which yeah. you and I had a lot yeah. of great conversations about in Lisbon that I want to relay here. Let's start. Usually we start with our mom win of the week. So for me this week, I think you feel the same, but I landed... It was like, I landed on Friday night and then it was like soccer games and birthday parties. And it was just like, I never had a chance to survive. I've had early morning breakfast and late night events every night this week. And I haven't had a moment to recover from jet lag. But two days ago, I, I had this one like 45 minute gap in my schedule and I was on Zoom. So I'd been working from home and I was like, I have so much work to do, but I'm just going to lay down and take a nap for 45 <laughs> minutes. And I swear that recharged me for the whole week. So that was my mom win. While it didn't have to do with my kids, it made me actually have enough energy to like play with them that yeah, evening. Yeah. And so that was my little thing I did for myself this week, a 45 minute nap. So there you go. I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> That's great. My kids are a little older, yes. right? So my son, Joey's 26. My daughter, Brooke, is 22. And they're, and Joey's the greatest. I jo- got to meet him in Lisbon. <laughs> great story behind Joey. Great stories behind, behind Brooke. But I would say my mom win of the week. And the way I think about this is they're grown up. They're on their own. They're doing their thing. Joey has his own startup. We'll talk about that. Rookie is just started her six year program in Wisconsin, getting her doctorate in psychology. Just so proud of her. But I would say it was really interesting because this week we're trying to settle all the details about Thanksgiving. And Brookie is hosting in Milwaukee, which is, this is a big deal. We're all flying out there. My mom, Joey, his family, my ex is going to be there. Uh, It's going to be amazing. And I would say for me, what just felt so good this week was when Brookie sent out the menu. She sends out the menu to everyone, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to get there, I'm going to help her, blah, 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 blah. I'm thinking of all these things I'm going to do for her. But when she sent me the menu, I'm like, my work is done. This is, I just wrote back and I said, perfection. Like, I, there's nothing, like, she has this. And you're asking me earlier, what's my next step in life? My next step in life is I want to be her when I grow up. That's what I want. I, I want to be her. She has this amazing confidence. She's just going to get it done. And she graduated early from UC Davis. She went immediately into grad school, didn't take any time off, just is doing her thing. And so for me, not that I live every day through my kids, obviously I have my own life, but it's just that sense of this week that, oh my God, she's on her way. Like a Thanksgiving dinner that she is hosting as a 22-year-old in the middle of the country. I'm just so comfortable with who she is as a person. That is so cool. And for my next question is, how do you raise kids like that? (laughs) Because you were working all through, been working nonstop forever. And these are crazy, enormous jobs, like being the treasurer of the United (laughs) States of America, among other things. And How did you, when you were raising your kids and they were younger and not hosting Thanksgiving, what did your childcare look like? (laughs) Like, how did you survive? Yeah, you know, that's, it's one of my favorite conversations because I really don't know how people do it. Now, I was very lucky because my mom did live with us 
when when Brookie was really young, and my 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 ex-husband, his parents, these were their. I mean, he was an only child, and so this was their. This was that my kids were their life, and so I was very fortunate that I called in the Breakfast Club, my 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 in-laws and my mom, because they would be up and ready to go by 7 a.m. every day at the breakfast table, the three of them together, ready to take on my kids. So yes, that absolutely allowed me to continue with my career. Obviously, there were still I was very much still involved, and I made the deliberate choice when Brookie turned four years old to put her in Montessori, even though I had this village. And it was a fabulous village. And again, my, my, my daughter and my son are four years apart. So by the time I put Brookie in Montessori and Joey was already eight years old, I felt like even though I did have this village at home and it was amazing, I also felt like Brookie needed to find her own personality. And I called it the Forbidden City because she was there and she had all these fabulous Adults taking care of her, I lovingly call them the handmaidens, but they, there was this one day where I walked in after work, and there's Brookie in the middle of the room, and there's one adult that's putting on her coat, another adult that's tying her shoes, another adult that's feeding her. I'm like, nope, that's not happening anymore. We are going to have to get her out into the real world. And so how, as wonderful as it was that I did have that village, there also has to be, I think, a, a decision that people have to make for what's in the best interest of their kids and how to really help them find their own individual self. And so I did make that very deliberate decision when she turned four to put her in Montessori and really have her find, again, who she was, who she is, and who she wants to be. One of the best things I ever did was to have that village. One of the best things that ever happened was to put her in Montessori. I have, I'm living that moment right now where you're like, okay, what responsibility do I give my kids? I don't want to be tying their shoes. I don't want to. And it exactly. makes your life easier, Absolutely. obviously, if you're not like changing them all the time. And yeah, right now, Phoenix is like waking me up at 530 a.m. Oh. being like, can I make breakfast? And I'm like, sure. And then you sit there terrified. And what's going to happen in the kitchen right now? And I'm just letting him try it right now. And he basically can only eat a few things that he can reach. Mm -hmm. But like, you need to give them those responsibilities. And you do catch yourself every once in a while. You're like, I'm doing all this for them. Yeah. And you need to say, no, you do it yourself. Yeah. But that's, that's a really good lesson. Yeah. You know, and, and I think the takeaway there is we have this image of what our perfect life should be as working moms. Yeah. And, and the truth is, there is no perfect image. There, it's whatever works for you. Yeah. So there I was. Again, I did have this fabulous village, and I was working like crazy all the time. And I never thought to myself that, that, that they couldn't work seamlessly. And again, that's another word, seamlessly. How does seamlessly work for you? Yeah. Now, obviously, I had that until we moved to D.C., and then there was this whole other world that I had to deal with without the village. Yeah. And we hear about the village a lot. Like that's how people survive. And it's, I want to solve that village problem for the people who don't have the village, yeah. especially now COVID made everyone move everywhere. But a lot of people did move back to their families when they're raising small children because they wanted to have that village. Yeah. And we certainly don't have it in Los Angeles. I've built it here. Yeah. Ashley, my business partner is in the room today and she and her husband are definitely a huge part of our village yeah. as is Jesse. Yeah. Work, family, it all all blends yeah, together. Yeah, absolutely. But okay, tell me how did that differ from how you grew up? Because you grew up in a large family. Absolutely. And you were the you were number six of I'm nine. Number six of nine. Yes. And you so what did that look like? Yeah, it, it was tough. My parents came to Mexico from Mexico to California in nineteen fifty eight and we landed in Hay Hayward, California, because that's where the Hunt's tomato 
factory was. And so that my dad was a seasonal worker. Uh, and they, so they made the decision to permanently move. But there, right away, my mom and dad had kids. So there's nine kids with 11 years apart between the oldest and the youngest. Oh she was basically pregnant for 11 years. But, but she left my dad. My dad was abusive. And that was a big decision because she was very Catholic. And pretty much after the youngest was born, shortly thereafter, she made that decision. And so she raised all nine of us literally on her own. And so we knew very early on that our village was our community, our church. So my, we were, my mom was very Catholic, and so we did remain very close to our parish, which is St. Clement's Parish in Hayward. And so that was really how we were able to access a good education through the schools. That's how we got our Christmas gifts. That's how we got a lot of support from from the church. But we all worked very young. And my mom, she would cater a lot of activities. She had the world famous tamales, which are still famous. Her tamales were amazing, but that's how she would live. That's how we would live, is she would cater these events. And she would also extend the daycare with, with other kids. So she would take other kids into the house after school. So we had, you know, 15, sometimes more kids at the same time all in the house. And so that village became something very different for us. But we also all worked very young. Like I worked full time in high school the whole time. So I would get home and start my homework at 10 p.m. until going to bed at 1 a.m. That was my life throughout all of high school. And I had this fabulous job. And so worked at the county library headquarters uh, in Hayward. Yeah, I fell on the lottery because I had access to any book I ever wanted. So it was fab. It was amazing. Yes, it was a tough childhood. Absolutely no doubt. There's no glamour in poverty. There's no glory. But it did create this work ethic that I think for all of us that still sticks to this day. And somehow my mom managed to send all nine of us to college. So it's a great story. It's her story. It's our story. But I think there's a lot of amazing women like her who do whatever it takes to make a better life for your kids. Yeah, that's an amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's obviously made you so driven and successful. And like, I'm very impressed with how that's an incredible story. But I, I think it says more about what still inspires me today. So it's still my mom yeah. who inspires me every day. And it's still my daughter who still inspires me every day. And of course, Joey. Yes, we'll get to Joey. But to have these, I, I feel sometimes life throws us a few more angles, a few more uphill battles that are always hard to work around. It's, it, it's not all things being equal. It's just not, and it never has been. And I really didn't come into that realization as much until later on in my life where I call myself this accidental feminist. It, it, it has made me realize just how hard it is. But there is no, no such thing as having it all. It's really you know, what I call this kind of rosy pie of life where like when I was in, in, in the Bay Area before I moved to D.C. in 2009, when I was in the Bay Area, I was managing director of investments for this $22 billion firm. My, I had my, my, my girlfriends, my sisters, my family. I was working out. My life was pretty darn good and a fabulous flavor, probably cherry pie. And then when I, when I moved to D.C., I didn't have that village anymore. And so I, I, I had to change those slices. And those slices became two slices, my work and my kids. And nothing else mattered to me, absolutely nothing else. So maybe my house wasn't always as clean. Maybe I wasn't working out as much. I, had, I couldn't interact with my girlfriends as much as I did. Obviously, I didn't have my sisters and my other family members there. So those slices became everything to me. So that is what worked for me. That was me having it all. And that was a very conscientious decision. But not all of us feel that comfortable to make those choices to get rid of some of those slices because we think yeah. our house has to be clean. We have to be working out. We have to. And the, the reality is that doesn't exist. No, not Anyone at all. Anyone who says they have it all either has a lot of help or they're not being honest with themselves because it just doesn't exist. Oh, completely. With three boys, I've given up on my house being clean. <laughs> <laughs> it is not clean. I don't know how you do it. 
really. And I think that's why we connected so quickly because three boys, I, I say this all the time, as much as I love Joey, my pride in Joey, I can only have one of him. I could probably have 10 Brooks, but I can only have one Joey. So the fact that you have three boys, it's, I can just imagine... It's crazy, but like you're saying, I I am very lucky and I have a nanny and I have an incredible husband who's my CFO and also the default dad right now in our lives. And those things shift and change, but I'm so grateful. I think what my husband is doing, working with me and then, you know, I took the first two kids to their every single doctor's appointment and I have not taken our third child to one and he's taken him to all of them. And that's been a shift because he used to work at a big PE fund. And, and, but I think what he's doing for me right now, I look at as like heroic. He's helping me thrive at work. Yeah. And that, that partnership is so key, right? I mean, again, my mom did it on her own. I, 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 we did it. My, my, there was a time where my husband didn't work. And so it was the, when I say the village, he was that fourth person in the village yeah. um, with my in-laws and my mom. And that worked again for that moment in time. And I was the breadwinner. And, and, and in fact, I was the breadwinner when I was in high school. And so the, this concept in my head of what we need to do, it's, it, it's ingrained. It's always been there. So, it, and people ask me all the time, you know, what is that next step? One, I'm never going to retire. That's for sure. This is volume one. No. Whatever it is, this is volume one. I love it. Speaking of, vo- your first volume has been pretty incredible. <laughs> I have to say, your vo- you have squeezed so much into this first volume. And, you know, what I'd love to chat about is I want to get into, first of all, let's just, let's start here. What's it like working for the government? Yeah, I, uh, I never in a million years back in 2008, when I was working in San Francisco, as I mentioned, for this investment management firm, I never in a million years would have thought that I'd work for the federal government, ever. I loved my life. My, it, it, again, I, I had worked in local government. I was the director of economic development and or redevelopment for many cities. And I started out in real estate. And so redevelopment in California is, is a tax increment financing program that allows cities to address physical and economic blight. And so I started out in commercial real estate in my career. Then I segued into local government. And I got to tell you, those cities, that, that decade or so that I worked in local government was amazing. And it was different because you can see the fruits of your labor, you're working directly with community members, you're building cities, literally, and I really love that. But no, the federal government, absolutely not in my vision at all for where I was going. You recall, of course, 2008, the financial crisis, the house was on fire, literally, the economic house, and, and there I was working in San Francisco, and I got a call from a friend of mine who was also in the Bay Area, but she was the SBA administrator under Clinton, Aida Alvarez, just a wonderful person, still in the Bay Area, still a great friend. So she said that this was, this was, the fall of 2008, and this is when Congress was trying to pass that legislation to put the economy back on track. They had already failed the first time. They're going to try to do it again. That was the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act. And so at that time, they were looking for, should Obama win, President Obama win in November of 2008, they were looking for finance professionals who could come in and work with the Bush administration to implement that legislation, should it pass, so that should Obama take office in January of 2009, it'd be literally a smooth transition. So I, one of Aida's friends from the Clinton administration was heading up the Treasury Federal Reserve transition team. And so she called me and said that Josh was looking for finance professionals who were willing to come in and work for this certain amount of time, three, four months, obviously one of the most consequential times in our economic history, and how could I say no? And also, once Congress passed that legislation in October 3rd of 2008, on October 2nd, 
literally, I had closed on a $300 million. We raised uh, almost all of it European pension fund money. It was amazing. But it was a time where literally no one was raising money. So I was about to take a 14-week vacation, literally. So as I was thinking about it, and again, you can't really say no when you get that call. So I decided to do it. I decided to jump. And it is a calling. It is a feeling that you get that it's not about me. It is about something larger. And it wasn't just what was happening in our country. It was happening globally. And so after President Obama won in November of 2008, I literally hit the ground running. And I was there from November 2008 through February of 2009 as part of this transition team, about two dozen or so of us finance professionals who came in to work with Secretary Paulson uh, as the Secretary of the Treasury and then President Bush. And it was a crazy, unforgettable ride. And I think people forget just how dire it was back then. It was very dire. It was really, we were spiraling. If you put it in the context of even after President Obama took office in January of 2009, our economy was still contracting at almost 6% GDP, and then still losing in the month of January of 2009, the economy lost about 740,000 jobs, which was about the size of San Francisco at the time. So, you know, we still weren't there yet. There's still a lot of work to be done. And I was, by the way, flying home every weekend to see my kids. There was only one weekend I didn't fly home, but I would take that same flight home and then take the same red eye back on Sunday and be ready to work on Monday morning. What a juggle. Non-stop. I don't remember much about that three, four-month period other than I remember not eating, not sleeping, getting stacks of papers every day. And my focus was on, at that time, was international affairs. And also, uh, I was the business liaison with the private sector. We got these stacks of documents. Sometimes we worked in teams, sometimes individually. Sometimes we had to make recommendations in a week, a day, or an hour. So again, a very crazy time for our country. And of the two dozen or so who were on this transition team, about half a dozen were recommended for a permanent appointment in the Obama administration. I was one of those. And you were the only woman. I was the first woman. The first woman. Confirmed in Treasury. So I was nominated by the president in May of 2009 as Treasury United States, which I requested for many reasons. I'll get into that in a second. But I specifically wanted Treasury United States because it was during that time on the transition team where I had this epiphany of putting the portrait of a woman on our Federal Reserve notes for the first time in our nation's history. And it was during, so I, that was my Woo! intent. Thank you. <laughs> that was my intent was to tackle that project. And so I cobbled together this portfolio of responsibilities that would allow me to pursue that project. And so I was nominated by the President in May of 2009, confirmed by the Senate in July of 2009. And yes, I was the only woman confirmed in Treasury in all of 2009. Oh, my goodness. And you told me that you actually tried to push through this child care initiative. Yes. So tell us about that. Yes. So that was really my first awakening, if you will, is this currency redesign project. And look, I was, I was 43 years old at the time. And not that I didn't think women's issues weren't important. I always thought that they were, but it's just nothing I had to wear on my sleeve. So my job, your job, is always metric-driven, quantitative. You were judged on your deliverables. And so I never thought about a woman, a Latina, et cetera, in the workplace because I was judged on my metrics. So it wasn't really until I went into the federal government at this awakening of, my goodness, not only was I the first woman confirmed in Treasury, the only woman confirmed in all 2009, this issue that I realized about never having a woman on the portrait of our Federal Reserve notes, and then all these other activities that I took on, so many in Treasury, and that really, for me, was my purpose. I found my purpose to be this accidental 
feminist, this accidental historian, this accidental educator, and it still drives me to this day. So I would say, going back to your question about what is it like working in the federal government, it's actually, it's actually worse than you think. It is very Great, Rosie. <laughs> Thanks so much for the it, it is very bureaucratic. reassurance. It is very political. It is it's very difficult to navigate. But I was there for the full two terms. And if you count my time on the Treasury transition team with Obama, and most recently on the Biden Treasury transition team, that's, I was there, I was in D.C. for 10 years. But here's the other thing about working in the federal government. It's better than what you think. So you have to find those diamonds. You have to find the coal, and then you got to find, you're already knee deep in the coal, but you got to go and find those diamonds. And for me, there were a few diamonds who really, I would have gotten nothing done without them. So Mark Patterson, our chief of staff at Treasury, was just amazing. And I would say my champion, along with Secretary Geithner, whom I adore, and obviously took the lead in putting our economy back on track. And for me, to do what I was able to do in terms of this realization of what it means to not just recognizing historical American women, but really recognizing the role that women are playing in, in, in kind of these pillars of influence of money and power is so important. So when you think about the kind of the, God forbid, the three main pillars of influence, sex, money, power, yeah. women have been relegated to that sex sandbox, talking about our bodies, promoting our bodies, defending our bodies. But women in positions of money and power remain so elusive, whether it's corporate boards, whether it's C-suite. Look, we talked about, as we think about the election that just happened this week in the midterms. Isn't it fabulous that this is the first time ever in our country that we now have, I think it's 12 governors, female governors, which And I think we're going to have number, more soon. I could mean, be, hopefully could be, in a couple years. Could be. <laughs> but the number before that was, I think it was nine was the most we've ever had. So yes, it's progress. Yeah. But here's the Debbie Downer piece of what I'm talking about. When you look at women's participation in, again, kind of social, political, economic indicators, the ones I mentioned, C-suite, corporate boards, members of Congress, members in the Senate, governors. Right. You know what all those numbers are? All those numbers, as a percentage, were in the 20s percent. Oh. 20s. 20s. We've been flatlining at the 20-something percent on all those major indicators forever, and the needle hasn't moved. So, yes, going from 9 to 12 is, is great. It's still in the 20s. Yeah. So, you know... Same for senators or percentage of females in the Senate, in Congress. It's still in the 20s. I really think change, solving child care will help this absolutely. in so, every angle. Absolutely. So one of the last things that I did before I left the administration in 2016 at the end of the Obama second term is I did make a proposal for, for something that was relevant to two projects that I worked on in my portfolio. So I, was, I oversaw the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, where we produced the paper notes, and the U.S. Mint reproduced our coins. She I, signs, like, everyone should get out their dollar <laughs> while they're listening to this. And she signed all the dollars. That's right. So you see Rosie Rios on every right. single dollar. I still should be. So I, I was there most for a long time. Signature, most famous signature, probably, The most famous person that you've never met. There you go. So, <laughs> Wait, so $1.8 trillion. Almost $1.8 trillion. At the time that I left, it was about almost $2 trillion in circulation. Today, it's about $2.2 trillion or so. But yes, so it's still, when it's actually certified by the Guinness Book of World Records, it will be a world record. It's never happened before. So yes, I still, I'm still out there. Look on the lower, le lower left-hand side. It says Rosa Gumatautau Rio. So Gumatautau is my, my, my ex's name, but it's my kid's last name. So it's just as important. It's now my middle name, but it's just as important 
to have my middle name on there because it's my kid's last name. It's as much about them as it is about me. And so it's That's truly a an honor. That's a beautiful truly way an to honor. put it. But during my tenure as Treasury United States in the eight years, we looked at a kind of an efficiency study that looked at ways that we could work between the two organizations where we, again, produced our coin and currency. I had seven facilities. And part of it was taking a look at our real estate footprint and what can we do. And so one of the concepts that we looked at was whether or not we should consolidate kind of the administrative headquarters of these two entities. So we did a feasibility study for, for looking at our real estate footprint for both organizations, for both of their headquarters, the Mint and the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. And in that process, I included a real estate component that looked at on-site and perimeter daycare as part of this possible new footprint. And so there were other federal agencies around the government that had on-site child care. I think the Department of the Interior was one of them. At Treasury, we had perimeter daycare, but it was very limited, huge wait lists. Of course, not everyone could have access to it. So after I completed these studies, these two feasibility studies for the two entities, I decided to think about an administrative policy that I would recommend, which I put in writing, which is, as a federal agency, and as if you have a either a relocation or a renovation that impacts 100 or more employees, you should include a feasibility study for on-site or perimeter daycare. That was my proposal. And doesn't need congressional commission. I, I sent it up for review, and the goal was to have it sent over to GSA, General Services Administration. And Treasury's buildings actually weren't part of GSA, because actually Treasury came first before GSA even existed. So Treasury was established in 1789 when George Washington first became president, and one of the first things he did is he appointed Alexander Hamilton. GSA actually became part of Treasury, so Treasury actually owned its own facilities. But my proposal obviously was I didn't have to go through that process because Treasury owned its own buildings, but I wanted to make this a federal-wide policy. Like any time any agency would go through the same process of a real estate due diligence, we should absolutely think about on-site perimeter daycare. And it does a couple things. One, it really allows you to understand who your employees are, what their needs are. And this is not a chick issue. This is something that also allows... It's a family fa- issue. It, this allows fathers who also come to work, who also have the ability to drop off their kids at on-site or perimeter daycare. So this wasn't because it was a woman issue or because I was a woman. It was because it was something that was that our employees actually needed, all our employees. Yeah. So not only does it allow you to know who your employees are, it allows you to plan accordingly to think about kind of their futures. And so if you're a woman or if you're a man and you're planning a family, and you want to think about your future opportunities for how you can integrate this into your work life, it is absolutely something that helps you perform better. So it wasn't just about childcare. It was about how to make us more efficient and more productive and actually happier employees to have your kids nearby. And you said you said you didn't need congressional approval. No. And so this is something you should have been able to just push through, but you proposed it and what happened? Well, it didn't go anywhere. So it's look, it's still an option. I'll never say never. Look, we're still trying to get a woman on a currency, right? So I, my work is never done. It, it will never be done. Thank and, and God then, we have you out here <laughs> fighting, no, R- but, Rosie, seriously. <laughs> thank goodness. We, I know someone is in there pushing like the women conversation Absolutely. forward. Absolutely. And people ask me all the time, when are you going to be done? The answer is when we're, no, when we're no longer talking about this, when it's not something that we have to bring up over and over again. We're not talking about the 20% anymore. We're not talking about what, where do I take my kid around work? Where can I have the proper amount of daycare? When we don't have those conversations anymore, then I'm done. 
And tell us a little about the dollar, getting the woman's yeah. face on the dollar. Yeah. This was all you. Yeah. So I know all of us have heard about this. And No, um, I don't think you have. You probably haven't heard the real story. Well, I haven't heard the real story. Yeah. Let's hear the real all story, right. Rosie. All right. Well, happy to share. So obviously, there's some things that I'll take to my grave. But I will tell you how it originated. So in, in the fall of 2008, I was on this transition team. And as I said, it was very stressful. Sky was falling. And I would take my breaks in the Historical Resource Center at Treasury. And people wouldn't realize that Treasury didn't just produce currency. They produced all the financial products of the federal government. Everything from postage stamps to savings bonds to food stamps. And they still produce the security page of your passport. So all these financial products that started literally in 1789 were in this area that isn't open to the public. And for me to go there and see all this buried treasure of concepts and renderings of these beautiful products that were made over these centuries that I got to see, I thought was amazing. So whenever I got a break, I would run in there, 10 minutes, an hour, whatever it was, I would run in there and I'd pour through these things, most of which had never been seen by anyone living today. So I'm going through this stuff. Like one time I found a, a, an iteration of a stamp for the World's Fair in San Francisco from the 1930s. And the first iteration said, and it was a three cent stamp for the World's Fair. The first iteration said, the, the three is too large, interferes with the water feature. The second iteration said, it was pencil scratch in the margin. The second iteration said, three is still too large. The last iteration, ready for this, said, okay, FDR. Like FDR was looking at stamp and approving stamp designs. It's crazy what was in there. After a while, as you're looking through all these beautiful drawings, and you start to see a pattern, right? When you're, my mind was already somewhere else with the high, heightened level of stress. But, but I started to see a pattern that every single image that I came across of a man was a real man, a founding father, a president, a cabinet member. But every single image that I saw of a woman was not a real woman. It was a allegorical woman, like a Lady Liberty, sometimes with togas and sometimes no togas. And so I started looking around thinking, oh my goodness, like I'm looking at the history of our currency and thinking, porn. Yeah. It's also, look, if you think about what currency is used for, even today, if you go around the world, on almost every piece of currency, you'll find a very historic, very significant person on the front and a very historic or monument or event on the back. So if this is the way we institutionalize our history, why are we missing half the population? So I did a little bit more homework and I realized, oh my God, we've never had the portrait of a woman on our Federal Reserve notes. Then I did a little bit more research and I realized in a weekend, by the way, that at that time, this was 2008, there were almost 30 countries who had women on their modern day currency. And we weren't one of them. How could that be? And by the way, still to this day, today, of the developed nations, it's still pretty much us in Saudi Arabia. That's what we have in common. So that, during that period, I'm thinking, us in Saudi Arabia, well, that's exactly. crazy to so me. So how could this be? So I asked the Bureau of Engraving and Printing Director, who would eventually report to me, how did this happen? Why have we never had this before? And I asked his deputy the same thing. And then his deputy, the same thing. The three of them had the exact same answer individually. Ready, the answer? No one's ever brought it up. Now, do I think it was a deliberate <laughs> omission? Maybe along the way, could be. But I also found out that to redesign our nation's currency, it's not the president, it's not Congress, it's one person, by law, in the US, the Secretary of the Treasury. Ha, so all I had to do was get to Tim, right, my boss. So I cobbled together the portfolio that I thought I would need to make this job, a this project, a reality. And again, Mark Patterson was the one who signed off on my scope of responsibilities. So it include 
oversight, and the first treasurer, by the way, ever to have this portfolio of responsibilities. So oversight over the Bureau of Engraving and Printing in the U.S. Mint, so 4,000 employees, $5 billion budget, and then senior advisor to the secretary. I wanted to be a senior advisor so that I would be part of the senior team. I would meet with them every day as part of the senior team every morning, which I did. And then the last one, which no one knew I was doing, I wanted to be the chair of the Advanced Counterfeit Deterrence Steering Committee. As the chair of the ACD, this is the group that comes up with what the future of currency is going to look based on security features and a very thorough kind of technical process that you go through to redesign currency that includes a theme. As the chair of the ACD, I'm the one that, and it's the only formal collaborative that exists between the Federal Reserve, Secret Service, and Treasury. And as the chair, these recommendations come through me, and I give those recommendations to the secretary. So by being the chair, obviously, I make the recommendations. I report to the secretary. And this was the project that I was going to cobble to make the pitch. So I did. I actually made it. It took a while because, again, there's a very kind of process you need to go through with overt and covert security features. You don't just pick a denomination out of thin air. $10 bill is still the next denomination, not the 20. Yeah. People thought it was the 20. It's a $10 bill. That's still the next bill that will be redesigned for this next generation of currency. But it was approved by Secretary Geithner in October of 2012. And we made the announcement of Harriet Tubman on the 20 in, in April of 2016. And then you made the announcement and then tell me also about you. You kindly gave me a quarter with Sally Wright on it. Yes. And it is like my most prized possession. I have it here <laughs> oh, with me today. That is so sweet. And I am just, it's like my lucky charm I've decided now because it <laughs> reminded me, it was like in a moment where I was just like, am I doing the right thing? And should I have come to Portugal and put, keep pushing this like women's <sighs> thing forward? Because you get frustrated sometimes. It You're is like, hard. does the ceiling actually open for us it ever? It is really hard. And you and don't make a lot of friends along the way. You burn some bridges along the way. Totally. Absolutely. And you gave it to me and I was just thinking, I was like, this is what I needed. I needed some oh, little dirt. Oh, tell you something. All right. So first of all, yes, that, that, that quarter means everything to me because it was also one of the things that I proposed in 2016 before I left, which is putting women on our coins. So here's the crazy thing. I mentioned by law, the secretary is the one who changes paper currency, the only person in the world. To change the design of a coin is literally an act of Congress. Literally. <laughs> literally. So I made the proposal to have women on our quarters. Didn't go anywhere. And I said, I'm not giving up. I'm going to do this. Lo and behold, five years later, I got this legislation approved. Thank you to Congresswoman Barbara Lee with the support of Bonnie Watson Coleman and also Speaker Pelosi, finally got this legislation passed. So if you haven't seen them already, it's a 10-year program. The first four years, five women on quarters for four years. So 20 women will be honored on this. The first one came out in January of 2022, earlier this year, which was Maya Angelou, and then Sally Ride, and then Wilma Mankiller, and then the next one is Anna Mae Wong, and then the last one is Hovita Idar. So those are the five for this year. And again, there'll be 15 more women over the next three years. And then it turns into one year of quarters and coins redesigned to honor our 250th anniversary in 2026. Yeah, we have a big birthday coming up. Yes, I'll talk about the second. And then four years of youth sports, because youth sports are very important to me, especially to empower women and girls, and obviously our young men as well. I heard um, you were on a you were on a Topps baseball card. <laughs> There's a Topps baseball card in I you. am. We'll get to the baseball card in a second. But the last part of this legislation, which is important, it allows the Mint to produce the medals for the Olympics, which will be in 2028 in LA. So this is, again, this is a, a recurring theme here of how to take this kind of starting with our history, right? Starting with women, taking us to 2026 for the 250th anniversary. It's not his story or her story. It's our story. And then ending with this global platform 
with the LA Olympics. So this legislation was very important to me. But the Maya Angelou quarter that came out first was amazing. Speaker Pelosi, Congresswoman Barbara Lee and I, we did this fabulous event in San Francisco because Maya had a history with San Francisco. But I carried around that first quarter that came out that was given to me from the Mint. I carried around with me for the longest time. And in June, I had a chance to meet Justice Sanji Jackson, actually gave her my first Maya Angelou quarter, and she was so touched. But I want you to know that Sally Ride quarter that I gave you was the first Sally Ride quarter that I got. Oh my so gosh. So that is your. <laughs> Thank you so much. Look, when I meet people who resonate with me and I know who value this journey, and it's a struggle. It's not just a journey, it's a real struggle. And I'm telling you these stories. I just literally spent three hours with Gloria Steinem earlier this year, and I'm telling her things that I hadn't shared with a lot of folks, and this is part of her kind of living legacy library that she's creating. And she tells me, she goes, you have to tell these stories. Like, you have to tell the struggle. You have to say what actually happened. And I will, at some point, I will say all the details. I'm just not ready yet. There's still a lot of people who are very relevant to the story that, that I need to work with. And I feel like you're alluding to people who have just stopped you from pushing these incredible. Yes, absolutely, and, and they will always through. look. Those people will always be around us, always, men and women. And it's unfortunate. Look, I, any women out there being a block, <laughs> stop it. I think it's because we think that sandbox is too small, and those sharp elbows come out, and so those sandboxes, the sex sandbox is gigantic. Yeah. We're all allowed into that one, but the money and power is the one that the sharp elbows come in. And I think we, whether it's the 20% or whatever it is, that's all that's going to be allowed in there. And that's where we got to break it. We got to yeah. break that sandbox open is what we need to do. And so, yes, go ahead. So, yes, I have a Topps baseball card that they made <laughs> because I'm a big Oakland A's fan. And I was invited throughout the first pitch in 2015. I was still in office. It was the A's against the Giants, San Francisco Giants. So you know, the Giants Those were playing are both in Oakland. My teams. And there you go. I was there with 42,000 of my closest friends. But here's the true story. So when the A's first asked me to throw out the first pitch, they said, look, don't throw from the mound. It's 60 feet, 6 inches. No one throws from the mound. You don't want to be some YouTube video, right, yeah. to get it wrong. So they get as close as you want, ceremonial. It'll be fun. Just have fun with it. So I'm like, yay, great, fabulous. My daughter, Brooke, who was the only girl in the boys' Castro Valley Little League before we moved out, of, out to D.C., she says to me, oh, no. Oh, no, you're throwing from the mound like everyone else, and I'm going to train you. And she did. And I did. And I threw it out. It was, of course, it was fabulous. And six months later, I get a call from my lawyer, and he says, do you know that you're on a baseball card? And I said, what do you mean? He says, when you threw out the first pitch for the A's, did you sign anything? And I said, yeah, I think I signed a release form. He says, oh, yeah, you just signed your life away. So there's a baseball <laughs> card out there. I had no idea. So Tops made a baseball card. To I guess it was a great pitch. It was a great form, whatever it was. And so, yes, it's out there. So That's amazing. Kind of I need yeah, that baseball kind card. Of funny. I'm going to no, find one and collect it. I'm going to collect it. I'm all, our house is all about trading Pokemon cards oh, and baseball funny. cards. Oh, that's funny. what I can do. It's a very valuable I, one. I will see what I can. Actually, on the secondary market, Tops showed me a screenshot on eBay. And it was it had Don Cherry and Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day and Chance the Rapper and Jimmy Kimmel. And they were like $2, blah, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $2, $
And so you're the chair. I just recently got this appointment. I guess it's my fourth tour of duty as a presidential appointment from President Biden. Congrats. To be, well, thank you. To be the chair of America 250. So this is the Congressional Commission that's planning the nation's 250th anniversary in 2026. So Senator Schumer appointed me on this commission four and a half years ago. We haven't gotten much done. And so they made the change literally just 12 weeks ago or so. So yes, I am now the chair and I would love to, we will do a huge public launch in Q1 of 2023. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of a teaser here. Ooh. This is all your homework assignment, by the way. This is the nation's homework assignment. I want people to think about what their pledge is going to be that they wanna accomplish by 2026, personally or professionally. Brooke, my daughter, her pledge, would, she would say, by 2026, I pledge to finish my dissertation. That's actually her pledge. My pledge, I'm gonna say, by 2026, I pledge to make as many Americans as possible feel like this is the land of opportunity all over again. That's my personal pledge. And I'll see what my, my, my professional pledge is going to be. I don't know. I don't know. Work with you. That's my professional pledge. There it is. Oh, good. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. I hope that was a, a, an official commitment. No, I've been, I'm begging her to be an advisor on our fund. Then my pledge is I want to invest $100 million in women. That is incredible. I hope that you help me do that. Oh my now. gosh, I would love to help you do that. That really, <laughs> oh. no, I got to tell you, Jesse, look, I know a lot of other people, men and women, who are investing in women owned businesses, women founders, startups, etc. But I have never met anyone who talks about it as passionately as you do. Oh my gosh. I, no, I don't think you're just talking about it. I think you're actually doing the work every day. You're doing the heavy lift. And you should be commended for that. Look, you have a lot of options in front of you. You always have. The fact that you're choosing this path, the fact that you're working and getting up every day and working as hard as you do with three boys and you're on your, what, third fund? Is this your third it's fund? my third fund. That's incredible because wow. I know it's hard. Can you just sit on my shoulder and give me these pep talks? <laughs> Thank you so much. You that was are so kind. A, you are. A, can I say this? All, you are a badass. You are. You're a badass. <laughs> yeah, but, we can but, swear. But, but here's the thing. You, you are a rock star, and you need to own your power. And it was interesting when I asked you to join me on stage with your dad for the LP dinner when we spoke. It's like you're very humble. You're very. But look, you need to own your power. You have built this amazing business on your own, you're doing it every day, and you figured it out, and you're on to your third fund, and you want to do 100 million by 2026. That should be, not just commended, I absolutely want to support you. Absolutely. I'll do everything that I can. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. That was so kind. I just, I'm going to listen to that corded every day. That's going to be my, like, morning pep <laughs> Carry that lucky quarter, too. So, the lucky Sally Ride quarter. I, That's I so want to ask you, first of all, thank you so much. That was, like, too kind. So kind. I am wondering, you really have been all up working in the government. You know how it operates. How do we, what's something tangible we can do to solve childcare and push this conversation yeah, forward? Yeah. Sorry, my well, microphone's yeah. getting Voting is one thing, right? I say that to me, I said that to my kids. I used to take my kids with me to, to the polls every time. I would show them the importance of voting. It's not just a box that you check. I, we go through the ballots in advance. Look, you have to know who the decision makers are, who the influencers are influencers are. And ultimately, you got to navigate your way. And there are many, there are plenty of members of Congress, hopefully you're a member of Congress, but it also starts locally, right? Yeah. You can do initiatives that start locally at the council level, the city level, the county level, and work your way through the state. And, it, and the, the reason why I do what I do, I have this nonprofit that I call Empowerment 2026. It was working through, obviously, up to this milestone of 2026. It's only me. 
It's by myself. And I do that intentionally because I do say all the time that one person makes a difference. One vote, one leader. And I'm really more hopeful about this next generation more than anything because they understand it. They get it. That anyone who was born in, in the 90s or later grew up with the internet. It's no longer what they're taught at home or what they're taught in the classroom. They have this obligation and they know they could test the waters constantly in terms of the information that's out there. So I think it's important for all of us to really think like the next generation. They understand the importance of all these issues, these social issues that we, in my generation, have left in the background for whatever reason. And when I say I want to grow up and be my daughter, I'm not kidding. I want to think like this next generation of millennials and post-millennials because I really do think that they're going to take it by the horns and not tolerate it the same way that, unfortunately, we have. Yeah. It's time to change it. And it, one person at a time. Absolutely. The, I love that. So one person at a time, you heard her. We need to vote. We need to move this thing forward. I want to talk to you all day, and I always do. And it's been one week, and I just am so I'm not letting you leave here. But um, we have to tell our goodbye story. Okay. So you said your favorite book. I cannot believe no one's chosen this on this show, actually. You said your favorite book was Goodnight Moon. Now, Goodnight Moon by Margaret Wise Brown, and it's illustrated by Clement Hurd. I know everyone knows this story. At least I do. It's definitely every parent's favorite because there's 10 words in it and really great <laughs> pictures. And we've all memorized it. Maybe I should quiz you after this. But just in case you haven't, here's the synopsis. A young bunny says goodnight to the objects and creatures in a green walled bedroom, drifting gradually to sleep as the lights dim and the moon glows in a big picture window. It was actually fun to hear what the synopsis of Goodnight Moon <laughs> is. And this was actually written by a woman, Margaret Wise Brown, and she died very young. I didn't know that. And I hope she knows up there how famous her book yeah, is. Yeah. So why is this such an important and memorable book for you? Yeah, both my kids were very active, but patterns, habits, consistent behaviors are always easier for kids to get used to in terms of their nap time, when it's time to get ready for bed, when it's time to go to sleep. And Goodnight Moon just always did the trick for us. I read it every night to each of them. And it was like a, it was like just the right amount of time to get them sleepy, just the right types of illustrations to keep them engaged. And after, like, they, of course they memorized it along with me to the point where we could turn each page. We knew exactly was, what was coming. But that was also their way to know that when we got to the end... <laughs> that it was time to go to bed. Yeah. And it was like magic yeah. every time. And that's a great lesson, I think, for all of us about we are creatures of habit. And those, those, the, that ability to de-stress, to relax, to do what you need to do, to make your time your own time, that, that's your mom time, right? Yeah. That's what you talk about. So it's not just good night moon for the kids. It's what's your good night moon? Yeah. We all need a good night moon, even for as sure. adults. So I think if there's any takeaway, it's, it is about our kids, but I think it's more about ourselves. Yeah. And what do we do to de-stress, to get ready for bed, and to really recharge so that we can take on the world the next morning? So maybe that's a question in the future. What is our good night moon? Yes, I love that. Oh my gosh. Rosie Rios, you, this was the greatest episode oh. of all time, truly. I, and we're both cheering up. I don't know if people can see. I we're both cheering up. Don't tell talk. people that. that. I'm like really crying. <laughs> this has been so absolutely so incredible. And I know we both have to get back to work, though, because we have some <laughs> monumental work to do. Absolutely. I'm going to go think about my good night moon, too. Thank you so much for listening. Please write us a review if you liked us. Tell us what you think. Follow us on Instagram at monumental.podcast or at Jesse C. Draper and tell us who you want to hear from and how you think we can solve childcare. Also, 
please give us five stars.